Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Dejo. Holy crap, what a week in politics and the world we just went through. I feel like I'm living in a actual real-life version of Leonard Cohen's uh, You Want Last Album, You Want It Darker. How is everyone feeling? Oh, it's been a week. Yeah. Uh, my favorite story to come out of the last week was actually related. There's a specific reason I referenced Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker, because the Trump campaign apparently used Hallelujah at one of his rallies. And the Cohen estate, of course rejected this and forbade him from using it but gave him full license to the album you want it darker which i thought was like one of the most hilarious trolls of trump that i've seen well the other thing i heard about that was that they asked the trump campaign asked to use it and they said no and they were like well fuck you we're gonna use it anyway oh my god yeah i mean i guess like yeah trump's like his level of his risk tolerance for the for the cohen estate is probably you know not the thing that's gonna make him respect rule of law but this is not a Trump show. This is like the one politics podcast that is not a Trump show. I'm excited about today's show. We have a bit of a collab episode for you where Ian Bushfield and Scott DeLangebaum, host of the hit BC politics podcast Politicoast, will take us through the snap BC election that has just been called one year ahead of their fixed election dates. Uh, stay tuned for that because we might see an early election call here in Ontario before too long uh, with the PCs nominating, what was it, like 72 candidates in one day. Uh, last week, Ian and Scott put out an emergency podcast uh, called I Guess We're Really Doing This Fucking Thing, which I feel like is very Ontario Loud in spirit. So very excited for the interview Alexi did with them. Stick around. But first, we want to talk about the federal government's speech from the throne and the Ontario government's weird approach to communicating the COVID spikes we're seeing this fall. So let's dive right in. Starting with the throne speech, it was by far the biggest story of the past week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau recalled the federal parliament to launch a new session after proroguing in August. The speech from the throne came in a time of unusual circumstances with unusual public interest. These things normally don't, you know, make headlines for more than a day. Justin Trudeau took to the airwaves on the evening uh, of the throne speech to all the major television networks with a primetime address, warning us of the dangers of the second wave, outlining the government's next steps for weathering the coming storm, and what the government's plans were for rebuilding Canada after we weather uh, this wave that we're in right now. Uh, maybe starting with the social safety net writ large, that was kind of the big theme. We're going to make sure that the social safety net is in uh, enhanced throughout this time. Uh, what did you guys take away from the throne speech? Um, and did we land in the right place in terms of what we know the needs in the social sector uh, to be in this time of like great struggle for people? So I think that despite a lot of the commentariat's reaction after the throne speech, I, this was certainly a very inspired throne speech. And I think kudos to the federal government for recognizing the limitations of our social safety net um, and and I think earnestly wanting to fix them. Um, I think the failures of our social safety net have captured the public's imagination now. There's no denying that our social safety net was torn and and some of the changes that that or enhancements that are being proposed now should have been done decades, if not years ago. So I'd say kudos, and these changes are welcome. I think an enhanced disability benefit and an introduction of a disability benefit that could function as a non-refundable credit is really exciting. And I think that the question now and what 
what makes me a bit nervous about all of this is that though the throne speech is inspired and though uh, things like a child care system and pharmacare and a disability benefit will support uh, people who live in poverty and people who have been historically left behind, it is overwhelmingly framed as supports for the middle class. And so when you think about the interactions between all of these different benefits, what you actually will have if some of the EI supports are made permanent, if the, if a disability benefit is introduced and is permanent, uh, you'll have a system in which we've created two income floors, one for people with recent labor market attachment and those considered deserving of support, and one for those without. And I will be the first to say that I'm a skeptic of a basic income, but I do think that this, because the feds are doing so much work now in so many different areas of social policy, that there is absolutely no reason for provincial and territorial governments to not step up on social assistance so that we don't have two really clear floors or income floors for people, people that we think are deserving of our support and those that um, have to rely on $730 a month in Ontario. I mean, I was going to say that I was actually a bit disappointed with the throne speech. I don't disagree with anything that's in it. I just, I don't know that it was a throne speech that actually moved the needle on anything, right? I think it's kind of like a budget where it listed absolutely everything that the government could do, but without any of the details. And I think the throne speech after the prorogation was an opportunity to really change the conversation of what Canada needed to do to get out of, of the recession, out of the recovery stronger than it was before. And I think they had a captive audience for a very brief period of time where they could have changed the conversation on a number of these things. We've talked about childcare, a national childcare strategy for 20 years, and nothing's happened. So people will just say, well, that's nice, but without any of the details, without money behind it, without actual, this is how the program is going to work, then it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, they were more descriptive in terms of what was going to happen to the uh, employment system, but it also could have been an opportunity to talk about let's do a basic income and let's create an income floor. Let's do this because Canadians are, are falling through the cracks. This is the moment that we need to do that. I wanted some sort of you know, New Deal type speech uh, for Canadians here where we guarantee that you know there's a chicken in every pot for every Canadian because we are too well off of a country to, to have the poverty rates that we do. And that is clearly unacceptable. And that people are only two paychecks away from living in poverty. And that's every Canadian. So we need to start creating a new program that will hopefully really excite people to talk about what we need to do and have that be the debate. Instead, we're talking about the politics of it. Instead, we're talking about, um, you know, the little details. How is this going to work? This, that, and the other thing. And I thought we missed the chance to have sort of a big ideas type of uh, throne speech. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Alvin. I think I'm sort of torn about this one because when I think about, you know, if you're sitting in government writing this throne speech, it's such a, a terrible tool for achieving the things that you're, you were hoping for, Alvin. I mean, it's just, it, this was a long throne speech compared to most throne speeches. They very rarely have any of the kind of detail you were, you were looking for. And so, um, while I agree with you, a nice speech like that would be nice and it doesn't have to be a throne speech. I mean, the prime minister can give a speech like that anytime he wants, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be this tool. Um, but this isn't, I mean, it's, it, I, I understand 
understand why it's difficult for the government to live up to the expectations, which they set for themselves, um, to using this tool. Uh, and so I think everyone was was inevitably going to be disappointed about the lack of detail in this thing. And I am 100% with you. I am disappointed about the lack of detail in this thing. Uh, and I think part of that is just that's thrown speeches and we'll have to wait for more details. The problem comes in that uh, this government has, uh, you know, is rightly criticized for having a big uh, ability to talk about things and then having trouble delivering on them later. And so that's really going to be the test as we move forward. Uh, but if I look at the social safety net section of the speech as a whole, I think I agree with you. I mean, I, I also wanted to see more on some kind of basic income, some kind of bigger uh, commitment at the same time. And the history of basic income in Canada is one of incremental improvement. And we already have basic incomes for children, which, you know, this the previous iteration of the Trudeau government uh, brought in. Uh, we have, you know, a good basic income system for seniors, which has lowered seniors' poverty to record low levels. Um, these kinds of uh, investments in uh, childcare, in uh, pharmacare, uh, in a new disability benefit, especially, I mean, you can see these as further steps on the way, right? It, that's sort of a charitable way of looking at it, that we're not going to get to basic income in, you know, a couple of years. It, it is the amount of change, of policy change, of systems change that required to even just like IT changes are mind boggling if we're ever going to get to that that kind of stage. So to me, I mean, I see a lot of uh, a lot of good things here that move us toward that goal. And each of these things individually, if you know, before the pandemic, the idea of, of, uh, you know, having one of these things in a, a throne speech would be a huge victory. And so it's just interesting to me how far we've come that we're now talking about, like, oh, man, it was only like, Better long-term care homes, old age security, disability benefits, pharmacare, and a billion dollars for homelessness. Like, come on, guys! Like, step up, do something real. Um, so, I think I think it's just it just it's a, a testament to where we are today, and I find that really interesting. So, I'm sort of torn on the whole thing. I will I will say that I um, I, I I agree, and I, like I was pleased with the ambition of the throne speech as well. It was a very liberal framing of things. Like I think that there is a like the a billion dollars for homelessness is amazing is that going to like solve homelessness like what is the like there's a way i remember this from when we were government we'd often lead with here's the money we're putting towards this thing as if the money was the important thing yeah um as opposed to the principle like i was delighted to see the homelessness investment but it is it reminded me of all the times that we led with investments that highlighted the dollar amount and not the goal and to your point alexi It'll be, I think, Grima, you reminded us in the uh, in our group chat that this is the last week that folks who've been on the CERB since the beginning will have be received eligible payments for it. And I think that there'll be a lot of growing pains as this support moves to EI. Like my top worry is that as folks are dealing with a lot on their plates, that, you know, EI is a system that requires you to continually check in, prove you're looking for a job, reapply every two weeks, I believe it is. So this is going to be a lot more work for people than they're used to. And it's moved away from some of the principles of, of, mm -hmm. of, of principles of a basic income. And, you know, there are, I'm, I don't, I personally don't really know where I sit on the basic income spectrum yet, but I, you know, it, it was, I think that there will be a, an evolution for these systems now that we're adding all these new pressure on it. Um, I want to talk a little bit of the politics, though, of uh, the throne speech, though. Uh, Alvin, because it was, a, I don't think I've ever seen a throne speech before where there was a television event afterwards. You know, normally it's like a very dry proceeding in the house where the lieutenant governor reads a big, long set of words. I have found myself, even if they're exciting, I find myself drifting out of them. But lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor. 
Well, and governor general in this case, because it's federal, but we're a provincial podcast. But yeah, each uh, like the prime minister spoke for 15 minutes and then the networks gave 15 minutes to each opposition leader. So um, Alvin, I'm, I'm curious if you can sort of walk us through some of the highlights from, from that, uh, from sort of what we saw from the leaders that night to the country. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I'd like to start talking about the framing of the address itself by the media, the pundits and some of the leaders, because there was already a lot of indignation from the likes of Andrew Coyne and conservative media that dismissed the entire address by the PM in prime time on all the national networks as a political stunt, undeserving of such a rarely used tool in the PM's toolbox. This hasn't happened very often, like you said, but in my opinion, I think it's a little bit of horseshit because you can criticize the government prorogation for five weeks or you can criticize the recovery plan itself. But we're in the midst of a global pandemic not seen since over 100 years. And if there was a pandemic version of the government implementing the War Measures Act, this is it. We're doing it right now. And we're starting off this week right here in Ontario with 700 cases. So clearly people haven't gotten the message about wearing masks, staying distance, uh, downloading the contract tracing app. So Already, I'm saying they're the ones who are playing politics with this instead of understanding the moment that that we're in. And I think they missed a golden opportunity to show what governments need to do during a crisis like this. And maybe they feel like they did that already six months ago. But this is six months later, and it's getting worse again. And when the Spanish flu hit Canada uh, 100 years ago, the second wave was much worse. And, and, and that's where the majority of people actually died. So I think... On our group chat, as you already mentioned there, uh, Chris, uh, Alexi had the line of the night. Uh, as we all watched the televised responses, he said, this was supposed to be about COVID second wave, and it devolved into the usual partisan bullshit. These four people could have collaborated on one message about saving lives. But that's exactly what happened in two of the three opposition responses. So Aaron O'Toole, he had to do a pre-recorded response because he and his wife are themselves fighting COVID-19, which means... They actually had a lot of time to think through what they were going to say. This wasn't going to be live, and they knew that they could frame the discussion. And I heard many say that Trudeau himself even gifted Aaron O'Toole with this chance to introduce himself to the country in prime time, because most Canadians didn't see Aaron O'Toole get elected because it was the middle of the night. Uh, most don't know he's the leader of the opposition, and most still don't know who he is. So in his five-minute speech, he walks out from his front door and talks about the need for Canadians to remain vigilant and fight against COVID-19. And then after that one line, he immediately transitions to attacking Prime Minister Trudeau. That was only 45 seconds into his remarks. He then spends the entirety of the rest of his remarks talking about Justin's failures, the political divisions in the country, jobs, and even trade with China. And he did it in both official language, which he didn't do about the COVID remark uh, off the top. So... I think the strategy here is obvious. The Conservatives want to introduce Aaron O'Toole to Canadians, and they want Canadians to know how different he is than Justin Trudeau. And the bulk of his speech was lifted from his own victory speech, and he does a good job of delivering it well. He's calm. He's fairly straightforward. He's well lit. He's got good audio. It's a professional speech from a professional politician all around, and it hits the notes I think the Conservative Party wanted to address uh, in order to appeal to their base and potential voters in an upcoming election, whenever that may be. That's clearly what they were thinking about, and and those and that's what they did. Um, Yves Francois Blanchet, who's the leader of the BQ, um, was next. He spoke live from his backyard, which was 
a little strange because it was already dark, so he could have been anywhere. He read from his notes. Uh, he didn't have a teleprompter. It was all kind of hodgepodge, and he didn't respond directly to the speech, even though he was live, right? So I think he had that chance, but he didn't do it. And he did it entirely in French, and he spent the entire time criticizing the federal government's response uh, in terms of how it affects Quebec and the, and the, and the provincial government's asks, which, uh, which is kind of expected. I think this is exactly what you thought would be coming from the BQ. Um, but I think there was also a missed opportunity there because... You know, this, again, I thought was an unnecessary partisan attack. Uh, and with Quebec leading the country in COVID cases, could have used it as an opportunity to say, this is what we need to do as a country. We've got we've got the example of the worst case scenario. Let's do better. Uh, lastly, leader of the fourth party, Jagmeet Singh, gave, I thought, the most human and compassionate delivery of the of the leaders. He spoke directly to Canadians, almost entirely memorized or off the cuff. He aimed his remarks at the start about how Canadians are feeling, how we need to come together, how how we're all thinking through this and struggling through this. And I thought that was the right tone. Um, he used the rest of his remarks to talk about what the NDP needed to see as part of the COVID recovery process from the government in order to support it and how that would help Canadians. So if the strategy of the NDP was to separate themselves from the other opposition parties and to be clear to Canadians what they got them as wins in the throne speech, if they got them, then they 100% hit their mark. I think they did exactly what they wanted to do. Uh, I almost forgot about the PM's remarks, but quickly, I think it was good. I think it was very good, but it wasn't great. I think he could have quelled some of the political criticism by focusing only on COVID and only about and only about what we need to do as Canadians and just giving sort of passing remarks to the throne speech um, in relation to how the recovery elements. So I think because no one's talking about his speech now, he didn't really hit the, this is a crisis right now tone and double down about how hard it is to be, how hard it's going to be to recover from this. He still had the fluffy hope and hard work tone that he likes to give us, you know, we'll work through this, but I think he needed a, we're heading towards disaster and thousands more people are going to die. Get off your ass and start taking this crisis seriously type of tone. I found the prime minister's remarks quite impactful in like softly delivered, but I, the line that really stuck in my head was like, we've lost Thanksgiving. And that was kind of when the weight of the moment kind of hit me. I don't know. I, I think he, you're right. He doesn't like to scare you with stuff, but like, um, I found like the uh, in his remarks the emotion of that hit me quite a bit. But what did you think about the like the opposition making it so partisan? But I think I mean that was that was going to happen because the liberals chose to do this address on the eve of the throne speech. So I guess what I don't understand is if you're going on TV to talk about COVID, is the best time to do that right after you've laid out a very political message from your government about what you're going to be doing in the future. I mean, it, didn't they kind of invite to some extent the fact that there would be this this pushback? Like, So I, I agree with Alvin. I think it would have been amazing if the prime minister had said nothing about the throne speech. Like if he had only made an address about COVID, not necessarily because it would have been good for the country. I mean, it would have, but it would have made the opposition party's responses look incredibly petty compared to what he had just said. Um, and it almost would have been a trap where you set up, you set up the, the speech on the evening of the throne speech in order to bait the opposition into being negative. And then you're the only one who's positive and actually looks like you care about people's lives. But I mean, that's super like that's deep game theory going on there. Like if they really just cared about COVID, like do it on a different day, do it on a less political day, do it when you can just 
you know, you know that it's going to be just about COVID and that's what the coverage you're going to get in. And it's not all going to be through the lens of the politics of the throne speech and that kind of thing. Like the whole COVID message was almost doomed now in hindsight from just when they chose to to have this throne speech. And it, it as I said, it kind of devolved into just this, this normal partisanship stuff. Uh, and we lost the impact of what needs to be the main message right now from all the parties, which is let's all work together to save people's lives. Do you think if the governor general didn't have the controversy around her that this would have happened? Like, do you think it's partly because they don't trust the message of the throne speech to be out there because of the governor general? I'm not sure you can. I don't know. I'm not sure the governor general as a messenger has sort of punched through to public consciousness. But what I do, my theory about this is that. Uh, we can't discount the importance of it being a minority parliament. And to me, this liberal strategy read of we need to create a use our bully pulpit to ensure that the parties are held to some kind of public account for an agenda that they might vote, vote down. They knew that they were going to be facing a throne speech. They might have been, uh, my guess is they might have been reading uh, some unwelcome politics in the House. And so putting it so much in front of the people uh, of Canada, um, sort of, you know, if this was the lead into an election, puts everyone in a reactive mode to the prime minister and an, an agenda that he lays out. So it's funny. I I agree. Like I think it for the country, it should have been a COVID message. But the fact that they're navigating a minority parliament and they needed to pass this confidence motion, I think necessarily made it a political moment that they need to get through. And I don't know. I think it, it it's. It's unfortunate, and I wonder what would have happened if you know there, it had been a majority government. And I'm sure, as I'm sure every uh, liberal sitting in the strategy room would, you know, would would love. But also, you know, I think created a good moment because the NDP committing to support the throne speech tells us where, you know, the center of policymaking for the next couple of years is going to be. The other interesting question that I have is if there wasn't a we scandal, would we have had a throne speech that was this ambitious? Uh, because if there wasn't a we scandal, would we have even had a prorogation of parliament? If there wasn't a prorogation, wouldn't have had a throne speech. Would the government feel like they needed to change the channel as much as they have? How much is the politics of that scandal and 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 having something new to talk about, something ambitious to talk about, actually part of what's behind this versus just this was what the government was always going to do, even if they were not trying to change the channel, they were always going to be this ambitious and not just you know keep going with their old their old strategy. What do you guys think? We would have had a fall economic statement from the uh, finance minister Morneau instead of what we're going to get next. So <laughs> I think without we, it would have been, yeah, it would have been different for sure. I, I, I actually tend to fall into the camp of I think the government has um, w- signaled that it was thinking about something big early on. I remember they had early in the summer sort of uh, framed it more around the road of a recovery and a rebuilding and now, and they have seemed to have shifted more to a message of responding to urgent needs as the as the case counts have risen. Uh, but I, they did. I, I I remember you know going back into August, them starting to begin to set the throne speech. And if they wanted to do something big, getting caucus on side, having those conversations, making sure everyone actually does take some time, I think, away from the, the regular cut and thrust of Parliament. I think that's a really interesting question, Alexi. And I'm not I. I don't tend to opine on the politics or the partisan nature of these things because I don't know. But from a policy perspective, it would be really sad that with even if this was just a normal 
you know, without prorogation, we had Minister Morneau table a fall economic statement. And if there was a road to recovery that didn't include childcare, I think that they definitely would have missed the mark. So, you know, we scandal or not, prorogation or not, like I do think that what was outlined in the throne speech is actually absolutely critical to our recovery. And the idea that people can't afford their medicines as people are becoming dislocated from their jobs even more and further unable to afford their medicines in the midst of a pandemic. Like, I think those are really real things for people. So, um, so yeah, I, I think from a policy perspective, if they didn't, if they weren't as ambitious, um, uh, without the backdrop of a wee scandal, um, then they would have missed the mark on a recovery and that would have been really bad. So maybe the silver lining of all of this is that we do have an ambitious recovery agenda. I, I do think though that the politics with the provinces is going to be really, really interesting because you need provincial support to get any of this done. And so as we think of you know, not only the federal leaders, but I think it's important to think of the provincial leaders as well. Like even on something like the smallest, not the smallest, but cost-wise, the smallest change is likely to be an enhancement to the survivor's benefit in CPP. And you can only do that if six out of 10 provincial leaders agree with over 50% of the population. And that is not something that's going to happen anytime soon. So when we talk about the details, like that very important detail is not going to come up in the fall statement. It's not going to be known in budget, but is actually absolutely critical to moving anything forward on something so small relative to childcare, pharmacare, or a disability benefit. So paying attention to provincial leadership is actually really important. And if Canadians want the things done in the throne speech, they have to put pressure on their provincial leadership. Looking at it from the Ontario perspective, I mean, we saw Ontario uh, being part of the coalition of premiers who was calling for a substantial investment in no strings attached money for healthcare. And at the end of the day, the, the provincial budgets are pretty fungible. I mean, you can move money from one place to another pretty easily. Like you just want transfers from the feds. You want to increase the amount of revenue coming in and you can figure out ways to move that money around. And in many ways, what the throne speech has laid out is a gigantic gigantic transfer of money to the provinces because if if they decide not to uh, allow all these dollars to flow to the places they're uh, going, uh, not directly by refusing the money, but just basically by clawing back money they're currently spending on these areas, since so many of these areas are provincial jurisdiction, the provinces really have a huge amount to, of money to play with here. They can decide to, to bank uh, some portion, if not all, of, of the money that the feds are proposing to invest, depending on what strings are attached when the, when the feds come forward. So I think from the federal perspective, it's smarter to do it this way because you have more control by saying, you know, we need to hammer out an agreement with you about what this is actually going to look like. We don't want you to just pull out a dollar from ODSP, for example, for every dollar of disability benefit we're going to put in. But, uh, you know, at the same time, um, you know, I see the provinces sort of, I see their point from a, from, you know, a federalism perspective, like, you know, the, the, 
federal government is signaling a huge possible encroachment into a provincial jurisdiction here. So to me, the really interesting thing that's going to happen out of this is how does that change the relationship moving forward between the federal and provincial governments across the country? And then particularly Ontario, we have a government that um, I think is going to be looking for every opportunity it possibly can to benefit uh, politically and also uh, financially from the money that the federal government is willing to pour into the province of Ontario. So are we going to see, uh, you know, a, a PC government in Ontario claiming to have magically balanced the books when in fact it's because tens of billions of dollars that they were previously investing in social programs uh, have simply been replaced by dollars from the federal government. Uh, are we going to see tax cuts now uh, finance off of uh, savings from, from social programs? Or is the federal government going to be able to force either through agreements or through you know pressure and politics the provincial governments and, and Doug Ford to actually uh, ensure that these dollars go to the places that uh, the, the federal government wants them to go to? I think that's, that's going to be really interesting to watch over the next uh, few years. I love how provincial governments love to come hat in hand uh, to the federal government saying we need more money when they have the same uh, taxation tools as everyone else does. But they and, and they love talking about how there's only one taxpayer. But as long as we're not the ones collecting, we can you know happily be the ones spending. Yep. And so that, that's exactly what I want to say, Alexi. That was great. Speaking of Doug Ford, uh, maybe talk a little bit about fall preparedness in Ontario, because that was also a bit of a kerfuffle last week. We are, uh, as the Prime Minister told us, we are not approaching a second wave. It's not in the future. We are in it right now. Um, today at 700 uh, cases, which is still not a thing that's totally settled into me, but is uh, working its way through in an unpleasant way. The Ford government in this context has decided that uh, its rollout of its fall preparedness plan should be nice and slow, like a good braise. Um, we get, you know, little bits of it at a time, <laughs> check in on it every hour, see how it's moving. Um, they released some high level principles uh, starting out. Uh, and then they released a, a a 20 page document to the CBC, which has not been published, which was sort of said, here's our draft. Um, and so Grima, you took a look at just the, the CBC coverage of this issue. And I, I'm, I'm curious uh, for your thoughts on what the government uh, roll out, rolled out. Yeah, so I'll, I'll provide a bit of an overview of what was rolled out. Um, but again, Mike Crawley of the CBC published an article that included details of Ontario's fall preparedness plan. Not to sound too skeptical, but let's keep in mind, folks, that we are in the fall. And so a fall preparedness plan should have been shared before the before the fall uh, with an implementation plan being delivered right now. And so while I'd be the first to argue that we're in uncharted territory, I'd really like to emphasize that during times of uncertainty, the absence of a plan makes people and communities and families feel even more vulnerable and insecure. And so I'm just not sure why we only have a draft plan with details being rolled out very slowly. In any case, I digress. And here are some of the details. The government overall wants to avoid imposing a lockdown style uh, measure to combat the second wave of COVID-19, but it is prepared to take quote unquote targeted actions such as closing certain higher risk businesses. Um, the government favors responding with targeted restrictions rather than widespread closures or lockdown. Uh, furthermore, and this is direct from the draft, even regional approaches to tightening would be avoided in favor of organization-specific or localized changes. A specific workplace or organization could be closed for a period of time or have additional public health measures or restrictions applied. 
or a certain type of higher risk business in a local area might be closed until the trends in public health indicators, i.e. cases, uh, start to improve. Side note, I really am waiting for an infectious disease expert to tell us how any of this makes sense. Since we now know that COVID is transmitted through air and is airborne, I don't know how organization-specific and very targeted uh, lockdowns make any sense because people move outside of the workplace that they may be working at or visiting. Um, and so, again, this this overarching uh, principle of the plan doesn't make sense to me, but um, I'll wait for an expert to tell me why I'm wrong. Anyways. The plan also commits uh, at least $2.2 billion to the pandemic response. The biggest single item is nearly $1.4 billion on a range of public health measures, including increased capacity in testing, labs, contact tracing, and other efforts to prevent transmission. As of recording, the government has released two elements of their plan, uh, the upcoming flu vaccination campaign and the expansion of COVID testing to some pharmacies. Over time, the parts of the plan include uh, expanding testing capacity to at least 50,000 tests per day with the ability to ramp up to 100,000 tests if needed. So yeah, that is the crux of what the plan or the draft plan sort of suggested, according to the CBC. I'll also say that there is a, the bottom part of, of the CBC's reporting also suggests that the government is looking to independent or private providers to help with the backlog of procedures for patients who have been waiting for care through the pandemic. Um, we don't know what many details of what this would look like right now, but I do think that it's something that we should be paying attention to. There's a couple of interesting questions that come out of uh, this. The first of which is, if this is sort of setting out, like, th this isn't the plan, this is sort of meant to give us an idea of what the plan might be, maybe in an effort to elicit public reaction. I mean, I guess our reaction to what might be there is of uh, is something I'm curious about, as is, like, how we think they this approach to communication will play in a moment where like people are literally waiting in lines that for COVID tests that they cannot get that day right now. Um, and so it's just, the whole thing struck me as really strange. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm curious uh, for, you know, like, does this hit the mark? What was guiding their approach? Um, and like, why this sort of, why this kind of rollout? I think the truth is, is that they have many versions of a plan that they are going to implement based on where we are and based on what the numbers are and the hospitalization is going to be and all that. And they're not willing to share it at for some reason, right? They don't have a plan that they want to say, this is what we would do in case of all these different scenarios, because they don't want people to talk about what happens if we have 10,000 deaths and what the scenario is going to be in that case. I don't know that they want to do that or necessarily they're prepared to deal with the questions that come from every stage of the plan. They want to be able to sort of roll with the punches, I think is their strategy. I don't know that I agree with it. I think um, Ontarians would be better off knowing, you know, if we hit a thousand cases, then these restaurants are going to close or whatever it is, just so that it shows that there's been some sort of forethought with, uh, with this strategy. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Alvin. I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me is uh, central banks, actually, uh, which is not something you would normally compare to public health. But I mean, central banks have moved toward this forward guidance model now, where rather than just setting policy in an effort to avoid unexpected policy changes that rock financial markets, uh, they actually say, you know, not just what their policy is right now, but what kinds of things would have to change in order for their policy to change. So you get that extra layer of the ability pr- to prepare yourself. Uh, and, and the rationale there is exactly the same rationale we should be thinking of in this case, right? I mean, the more that people have the ability to understand what the implications of changing numbers are on their lives, how they can take steps to, to help to avoid those numbers getting worse, uh, what those points are where it's going to start to affect their small business or you know the, the broader economy so that they can make decisions with less uncertainty. I mean, those are things we want just, just for you know holding on to what little economic activity we currently have. Uh, and, and I don't understand why those lessons haven't been translated into the public health sphere in this case. Uh, it seems like we've had enough time. Like I just at some point, I, I can't keep giving the benefit of the doubt that we're sort of still learning about this thing because, uh, yeah, we are deep into the fall and this is supposed to be a fall preparedness plan and it should have some of those basic pieces to it. And as Grima said, I mean, if this plan is just going to be like, oh, we're going to like close down this block because somebody got sick, like you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I think that clearly they are balancing some things. I mean, if you look at who the PC's base is, it is big business, medium, small, medium-sized business too, areas of the province where that are seeing lower case counts and uh, and a greater degree of skepticism on large scale uh, on large scale rapid action. But I mean, there's no way around, you know, if we hit certain levels of case counts, can we really keep indoor dining? In in an ideal world, what you would want is actually maybe a conservative government who would take that approach and say, look, we need your to, to plan for business alternatives way out. But it seems like what they're trying to signal here to those audiences is we are going to try and limit as many of you as possible from needing to shut down, needing to lay people off, needing to do all of these things. And, uh, and I don't I don't know anything, but I'm willing to bet that, you know, there it's because parts of that approach don't actually stand up if we hit certain levels of of COVID cases, which which really sucks. But I I wish we were having a conversation that was more direct about that. I, I want to put on a tin foil hat for a second, and <laughs> because I think there's a there's a risk here that they've made an assessment because they know the math, they know how it works, they know that if uh, out of every ten thousand cases of people under twenty who get COVID, five of them will die. Out of every, you know, 10,000 cases for people over 85, you know, 50% of them, whatever it is, they've made the calculation, which means that they're making calculations based on this recovery plan and when things are going to open based on those counts, right? They're going to be like, what is our acceptable level of risk of the number of deaths in Ontario, the number of hospitalizations in Ontario for us to continue to stay as open as possible or keep things going um, the way they've been going and I don't know that I would want those numbers out either if I made that decision. But like, isn't consumer confidence something that businesses worry about and and people like actually going to restaurants or getting their hair cut is absolutely critical. And so like, I think there is absolutely no recovery unless we can get this pandemic under control. That's just principle one, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum. And so to deny that, which is what we're seeing from many governments, not only here, but across the world, is is just prolonging 
the recovery. And so a part of me just does not understand how how we can continue to divorce supporting people from supporting businesses and from public health and social well-being. Like if we haven't learned that at this point and the pain from the pandemic hasn't helped people to shift how they think about these things, I I actually don't know what will at this point because these these things aren't separate. And if you want restaurants to continue to be open, maybe you do think of a model where you support people to dine in from home. And that requires people delivering the food and that requires safety for those people that are delivering food. That requires good wages for people delivering the food. And if that's not coming from the businesses because they can't support paying the rent, and paying their staff, it requires government stepping up somewhere. And so to retreat from rent support, to retreat from wage support is really bad business. And I just don't understand why now over six months in, we are still having this debate. Hey, hey. So before we get into our collab episode with BC Politics Podcast Politicoast uh, on the election out there, I want to take a quick moment and thank you for listening. Uh, whenever we stop making pod, whenever we go on break for a short while, I always kind of wonder what it's going to be like when we come back. But we had a great reach on our first episode of season four. Uh, we want to reach even more people, though. And so we're asking all of our listeners to take some time and go one or all of the following things. Uh, you can give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Reviews help us a lot and uh, help us sort of push up in the Apple Store and get us closer to being that new and noteworthy category, which uh, will help us reach a lot more folks. So if you have a moment, give us a review on iTunes. If you don't have iTunes or an iPhone, that is all good. Posting about Ontario Loud to your friends on social media will help us attract new listeners. We're on Twitter at, at Ontario Loud. We have a Facebook group too. Finally, you can donate on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or ontarioloud.ca and hit the Patreon link. And on that note, wanted to send a special thanks to Adam Reinhardt and Phil Donaldson for signing up this week. Phil and Adam are awesome people who are contributing each month to help us keep doing this and covering our class. It is super, super helpful. All right, on to Politicoast. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. I'm Alexi White, and you're about to join me for an unusual trip beyond Ontario's borders for a crash course on British Columbia politics and the SNAP BC election that will take place on Saturday, October 24th. If you're wondering why you should care, first of all, stop playing into the stereotype of the self-centered Ontarian. BC politics are some of the most interesting in the country, and given who Ontario has elected, we clearly have much to learn. Second, speculation is mounting that Doug Ford may also take Ontario to an early election before next summer. So what happens in BC over the coming weeks may be a preview of what's to come in Ontario. To demystify BC politics for us, I'm very excited to be joined by Ian Bushfield and Scott DeLangebohm co-hosts of the weekly BC politics podcast, Politicoast. Ian, Scott, welcome to Ontario Loud. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you guys. I myself am a Politicoast listener and a fan, so awesome to be able to speak to you guys in person, having listened to you uh, every week. So before we jump into BC politics, maybe just tell us a bit about yourselves and your podcast. Uh, Ian, maybe start with you. Sure. I'm currently on leave from my day job, which is working with the BC Humanist Association, advocating for the non-religious here in BC and I'm just on parental leave, so I get to hang out with my one-year-old daughter. But I've been a politics watcher follower since undergrad when I grew up in Alberta, and I was involved in Linda Duncan's 2008 campaign, where she kind of put the first NDP seat on the map in Alberta, breaking that blue wall. 
And then I moved to BC in 2009 and have been here since with a brief two-year interlude when I lived in the UK and have been on and off involved in partisan politics, but more just sitting on the sidelines, whether on blogs or on podcasts now. So we, Scott and I launched Politicoast four years ago now, almost to the day. It was late September 2016, and there was so much U.S. and other political coverage that we just thought there should be more coverage of BC politics. It's a fascinating field, as you mentioned, always controversial, always stuff happening. We'd met in the pub and would talk politics all the time and came at it from slightly different angles and thought like all you know, millennial white men that <laughs> other people would want to listen to that. Yep. <laughs> well, happy anniversary to the pod. That's fantastic. Um, Scott, what about you? Uh, yeah. So I grew up in BC, uh, spent a little time out in Eastern Canada in Ontario, New Brunswick, uh, joined the army after high school, uh, but came back to BC. And like Ian said, whenever we'd hang out in the pub, we'd always end up talking about this. So figured might as well share it. Uh, well, on to the election, I guess. Um, maybe if I can ask you to set the stage for us. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners will know that BC has had a minority NDP government for the last three years, supported by the Green Party. Um, so what's what's the background story there? How did, this, how did we get to where we are today? So in 2017, the government was being led by the Liberal Party with Christy Clark as Premier. Similar to your Liberal Party, it had been in power for well over a decade and a half at that point, and was starting to show its age and was fairly unpopular. However, unlike the Ontario political situation, which more or less mirrors what happens federally, where you have conservatives, liberals, and NDP, the, the party structure is a little different out here. So you have the BC NDP, they more or less fall into where the federal NDP does, although they'll also have a few more people who typically vote federal liberal as their supporters. And then the other major party that was in power in 2017, they're the BC Liberal Party. And unlike the federal liberals or the Ontario Liberal Party, they're very much a coalition party between federal liberals and federal conservatives and like to brand themselves the party of free enterprise. The key way to think about BC politics since the introduction of parties really in this province, which was in the 1910s, 1920s, uh, is you had the CCF form around that time. And ever since then, it's been the socialists and the party that are not socialists. Uh, and the party that is not socialist is everyone just tries to get together in whatever configuration they can to keep the socialists out. So in the 50s and 60s, you had social credit. Uh, in 72 to 75, you had the first NDP government in BC that lasted three years under Dave Barrett, and then social credit got back in. Eventually, they imploded. Uh, the Harcourt and Glenn Clark governments of the 90s went through, and then the BC Liberals came in. And it's always just this free enterprise coalition versus the NDP or CCF. And then in the previous election to the 2017 one, uh, that changed a bit when the Green Party that's kind of always existed out in the background actually won their first seat and became a fairly significant part uh, in the 2017 
election and the aftermath of that. Right. And that's interesting because in Ontario, we also just had the first beachhead for the Green Party. So it's uh, perhaps portends things to come for Ontario as well. But so moving on to, I guess, to the 2017 election in particular, that one was very, very tight. There was a lot of uncertainty uh, in the days afterwards about even who would form government and how. And the Greens held the balance of power. Uh, can you take us to, through sort of what uh, the result of that tumultuous time was and what, what's happened over the last couple of years? Yeah, the 2017 election, like you said, resulted in a very tight race. Like I said, the NDP has always been a kind of traditional force in BC, and their base is roughly 40% of the population, which in most provinces under first-past-the-post is enough for a majority government. But that other force can usually cobble together a couple more percent, and that'll give them a majority. The actual result in terms of percentages was 40.37 for the Liberals, 40.29 for the NDP, and 16.83 for the Greens. So very close, nail-biter. The, the Liberal vote was a little more efficient, so they pulled out 43 seats to the NDP's 41, and the Greens got three. So nobody had a majority, but being the party that was already in power and Christy Clark being the first minister, she got to go test the confidence of the house. And that's what she ended up doing after the election, put out a throne speech that was very much aimed at trying to win over the NDP and the Greens basically adopting a lot of their talking points, which was promptly defeated. Yeah. By that point, the Greens had already decided they were going to sign a confidence and supply agreement with the NDP after a bunch of negotiations. And I encourage people who are really interested in this story to pick up the book Matter of Confidence by Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman, two BC legislature journalists who went through and talked to everyone involved. Like Scott said, Christy Clark failed that confidence motion. And then there was this question of, well, the Greens plus NDP are technically one seat short of a major, or they were exactly a majority. So it would be tied. And then there was a big question around who would be the speaker, because if they gave up a speaker, they couldn't get bills passed. So it seemed unwieldy. Uh, but then there were, on like the first day of the session, there was this shock as uh, liberal MLA, uh, Daryl Plekis, decided he would be speaker. And suddenly he was kicked out of his party he wasn't just kicked out of caucus. The liberals tore up his membership card and like burned. They hated him for a long time. I think they still do. Uh, but he became an independent speaker, and that gave the Greens and NDP the like one seat majority they would need to govern going forward. So unsurprisingly, everyone thought it was pretty unstable from day one. Uh, but it turns out when you're in BC politics, if you're government, you control a lot of power and you really only face one or two confidence votes a year and provided you can get past those you can govern like you have a majority so it was pretty stable i would agree with you on that on that i mean it's for uh, people who aren't familiar with minority governments more from the federal uh, side and you know in the early 2000s and then now where things are not governed by these confidence and supply motions. It can be hard to imagine. But I mean, the the agreement between the NDP and the Greens uh, laid out very specific deliverables that uh, the NDP had to provide in order to get Green support. And um, that is seems to have kept things pretty stable uh, over the past three years. 
But now that the NDP has decided to call an election during the pandemic, uh, one of the arguments uh, that Premier Horgan is making is that the government wasn't stable enough, that there needs to be more stability during the pandemic. So how uh, you know, how do you how do you guys see the NDP's arguments for calling this election? Um, do you think they hold water? Is this really just opportunism because they find themselves uh, polling very well? I think they were at forty five percent in one of the poll aggregations that I saw. Uh, what's the what's what's your take on sort of the uh, the decision there and um, and where we're headed? As far as I'm concerned, it's pure opportunism. The Dream Party, their partners have come out and said multiple times we were t- comfortable supporting them through until October 2021 when the net schedule election was called. There was no real signs of things breaking down. The little bits of friction that had popped up, every time Weaver would criticize the NDP a bit, there'd be a round of speculation about, oh, does this mean the end of the confidence supply agreement? But it never got beyond speculation. And there's no real signs that there was anything but good relations between the two parties. Yeah, the Greens did just elect a new leader, Sonia Furstenau, after Andrew Weaver earlier this year announced he was leaving politics and in that decided to become an independent MLA, tearing up his Green Party membership card. And interestingly, right as we hit record, I saw that he just announced that he's going to be backing the NDP in this election, uh, kind of really stabbing his party in the back. But in terms of stability, I mean, The government wants to point to two bills in the summer that the Greens didn't support, the Green Caucus didn't support. And ultimately, that's a pretty weak argument. I mean, the Confidence and Supply Agreement says that the Greens and NDP will work together on those shared priorities, which have been largely delivered. And beyond that, it's up to the government to find support in the legislature for its agenda. I mean, I think it's about 80% optimism, maybe 70% optimism, opportunism. And I think what I'm just hoping for is if we see the parties come forward with bold visions, we can pit them against each other and say, what kind of recovery and moving forward do we want to see for British Columbia? You know, if the NDP just go, what you've seen is what you'll get. I'll feel like this is really pointless. But if they do present some bolder vision, something stronger that they couldn't do without the Greens. That's where I think there's a point to this. So uh, maybe before we go into uh, what you guys think is going to happen as we move forward, can you tell us a little bit about the the major players in this? I mean, so much of the election always comes down to the leaders. We've, you mentioned Sonia Furstenau as the new Green Party leader. Um, she's probably going to be fighting hard not to get sidelined if this becomes a two-horse race. What about Premier Horgan? I mean, what's he's been enjoying a high approval rating. This, you know, he has a very sort of sunny disposition, a kind of a, a everyday man sort of thing going for him. This election call to me seems a little bit off-brand for him. Uh, and then you have Liberal Party leader Andrew Wilkinson, who seems to have been a little bit gaff-prone over the last few years, and and the, the party just does not look like the political juggernaut that they once were. How do you guys see those guys? Who are who 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 are these? main players that uh, that are going to be taking their pitches to the electorate? So prior to the 2017 election, there was actually a lot of speculation about whether John Horgan had what it took to lead that party and whether even like in the months prior to the election, he should be replaced by someone else like his attorney general, David Eby, who'd been getting a lot of big headlines. But during the 2017 election, Horgan somewhat connected with British Columbians and we saw a little bit of like anger in John Horgan that I think he got portrayed as like unable to control his emotions. 
but he managed to get that under control. And once he became premier, I think people really started to appreciate him because he didn't run a radical agenda. He delivered what he promised. It was, we're going to increase spending, we're going to increase some taxes on the rich. And some of those things did lead to people getting upset in wealthier districts. But overall, approval has been high throughout Oregon's entire tenure. I think he's frequently one of the most popular premiers in Canada. And uh, what do you guys think about Andrew Wilkinson? Uh, So Andrew Wilkinson took over the party after Tristy Clark resigned following the defeat in the legislature. He is from the federal liberal wing of the party. And so is Tristy Clark. And that's always led to a bit of a tension within the BC Liberal Party because being a coalition party, a lot of work has to go into keeping the coalition together. And what that often means is when the leader comes from the liberal side of things, they move to the right a fair bit to try and keep the conservatives in the tent and away from splint away to the technically exists, but only just BC conservative party that will run maybe a couple candidates this election, if that. The way I've heard it uh, is that the view within his office is that they came so close last time, they just need to pick up one or two seats. And because of that, they've been laser focused on a, a base first strategy throughout this entire last several years, which has had the effect of, I don't think, really connecting too well with a lot of British Columbians who aren't partisan liberals. We've also seen, I think, the the uh, donation numbers are quite striking. The NDP has been outraising the liberals by a substantial margin uh, since taking office. Um, so, I mean, as we look ahead, I guess, to the main issues of this election, the war chest of the different parties, the fact that the NDP is uh, headed in the polls heading into this. I mean, is this thing already over before it started? Is this going to be another example of like the New Brunswick election? Uh, or do you think British Columbians are uh, are still making up their minds? And uh, will there be any penalty for the NDP calling this election early? On the fundraising numbers, it's interesting you mentioned that because historically, BC has been, I mean, in I think it was 2015, 2016, the New York Times called us the Wild West of political fundraising. I don't think we're anywhere near as like wild as some of the American stuff. But for Canada, there was not a lot of rules around donations. For example, that became a winning message from the Greens and the NDP in that election. And so the first bill they brought in was banning corporate and union donations and putting a $1,500, I believe it is, uh, cap on individual donations. And that immediately kneecapped the BC Liberals, who long relied on major donations from you know real estate firms and a number of other uh, industries. This is you know, possibly the first election where the NDP goes in with a fiscal advantage over its competitors, something we've never really seen. And I think that also helps spur Horgan's decision to call a snap election because he looks at his competitors and they are not as well off as the NDP is. And also the current leader, Andrew Wilkinson, has been somewhat unpopular within his own party and general. And we, we didn't mention this when we were talking about him earlier, but the guy's a lawyer and a doctor and is very much the type that tries to be the smartest person in the room and often is, but it's not a persona that particularly connects well with a lot of people. And you mentioned some gas and that's being a large part of it. So is this thing over? I 
don't think it's a sure thing by any means. So in 2013, uh, now current health minister, then leader Adrian Ditz was leading in the polls right up to the election. The province uh, newspaper here in BC ran the headline, this man could kick a puppy and still win. He, he lost. And that just I think is illustrative of how things can turn quickly. Right now, they don't seem to have taken a hit for this very opportunistic move to call an election. But some initial polling we've seen shows, even though the support's been fairly steady, most British Columbians don't want to go to the polls right now. And this also, I think, plays against the John Horgan type we were talking about earlier. And that could be damaging for him in the long run. The affable, fairly middle-of-the-road premier dad persona that he has could end up getting replaced with one that's where he's perceived as a lot more kind of a, a Machiavellian political operative. And that isn't being seen right now, but it, there's definitely a long-term risk for the NDP in that move. Yeah, I think, I mean, the big, the, the biggest risk to the NDP is that COVID takes a churn for the worse and that knocks off any other messages that the parties are trying to get out. I think right now, if the NDP and Liberals start putting out platforms and start talking about ideas, people will get over the, should we be in an election debate and move on to the, well, we're in it, now let's just deal with it and get it over with kind of debate, in which case people will just reflect on the last few years and think probably similar to how they've responded to polls. Now, if there are massive outbreaks in schools, which have recently reopened, people start going, why isn't the health minister being a health minister? Why is he on the campaign trail right now? That's where I think the risk comes in. I think the only other thing I'll add to that is I think this election outcome is going to be very unpredictable and not very instant. We're seeing record numbers of people request online or mail-in ballots, several hundred thousand already, whereas usually it's tens of thousands. And Elections BC has said they can manage that, but it will take, I think they can do, you know, it'll take a few weeks to get all of those votes counted. And so depending when people vote in the election, because you might get your mail-in ballot in a few days and you might just write NDP on it and send it off or liberal on it or whatever you do. And then if the campaign churns, your vote's already locked in. So it's going to be a weird campaign. And I think the NDP is probably hoping most people vote quickly. I don't, you know, it's going to be weird because the poll, the results may not match the last day polls if there's big churns in it too. Well, it should be an interesting six weeks or so then. Thanks so much, guys. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on the pod to uh, give us a little crash course on uh, the BC election. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Happy to do it anytime. And people can listen to us at politicos.ca and find us in all the usual podcatchers. We talk about this every week. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, yeah, thanks again. You heard Ian Bushfield and uh, Scott Delanga Baum, co hosts of the weekly BC Politics podcast, Politicoast. And uh, yeah, as Ian said, you can find their podcast anywhere where you find podcasts. And I encourage you to su subscribe. It's a great, great podcast. And oh, and one of the best theme songs of any podcast that I've ever heard personally. Just throwing it out there as well. I won't break into song right now um, so that I won't ruin it for the uh, those who go and check it out. That's all for today's episode. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. And if you have thoughts on what you heard today, 
Get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. Ontario Loud is Karima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andre, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, and me, Alexi White. We are supported by amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or OntarioLoud.ca and click on the Patreon link. Thanks for listening.